Hey, everybody. Welcome to my first ever podcast. It's titled Training Your Brain to See Like a Camera by Thinking Outside the Box. What exactly do I mean by training your brain to see like a camera? Well, ever since you're born, you've established a connection between your eyes and your brain. And you've come to know that as reliable and quick and trustworthy. But also, I think a lot of people take it for granted that it just works that you always see what you want to see. Your eyes are always in focus. It's always exposed correctly. And you process that information so quickly that a lot of people don't even realize that it's happening and it's just like hearing. You don't pay attention to your hearing. It just happens. But what I want to try to do today is reshape that connection between your eyes and your brain redefine what it is to actually see and redefine what it means to actually think about what it is you're seeing in a new way that hopefully, well, anyway, hopefully will be new for you. This podcast is basically a a condensation of a two-day workshop that I've presented many times. And over the two six or eight hour days, we, we delve into a lot of these things very deeply with questions and answers and simple exercises, and I show a lot of images and we talk about how we got there and and what other things we can possibly do to make things different. But in this case, I'm just going to go over the main points. Let's get started. So what's the first step in seeing better photography? Because a lot of people ask me, how do I become a better photographer? Or they'll see an image of mine and they'll say, how do I make an image like that? And I always tell people that anybody can make an image, but it takes practice and it takes a new definition of that connection between your eyes and your brain. And once you've sort of achieved that, then you really can break through and start taking the pictures that you like to see, the ones that you imagine. So if you're looking through a magazine, whether it be Vogue or National Geographic, and you see an image and you're like, oh my God, how did they get that? I want to take pictures like that. That's the goal here. And like with any other art or practice or skill or craft, it takes a lot of practice. So even though you may understand and comprehend and begin to work on these new sort of neural connections, if you will, you're going to have to practice a lot. And I mean a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. You didn't learn to ride your bike in one day. You didn't learn how to become a good driver in one day. You didn't learn math in one day. So Be patient and really sit down and chart out the progress you want to make. Where do you want to go with your art, your photography, your image making? What do you want to become better at? What is it going to take? Well, that's why we're going to go walk you through these steps today. So where do we start? Well, first of all, you have to decide what it is you want to do. And that in life can be almost impossible. What is it that you really want to do? What kind of photography do you really want to make? What what are you really interested in? Well, there's stuff like event photography, weddings, uh, sports, more artistic things like portraits, landscapes, night photography, wildlife photography, uh, street photography. There's scientific exploration, sort of macro, high-speed, astrophotography, ultraviolet. All of these are different skills, different mindsets, very different skills, actually. And each requires sort of an, a unique approach with a unique skill set and some, in some cases, unique equipment, of course. Now, equipment, let's just cover this quickly. Equipment does not, better equipment, I should say, does not make you a better photographer. A lot of people might just say to me, well, if I, if I only had a, a $5,000 DSLR, I'd be a better photographer. Well, that's not exactly true. 
So I'll just address that quickly right now. Having a better camera does not make you a better photographer. The camera is the box, is the tool that you need to train your brain how to use better. And your eyes are the tool that need to shape what the camera sees better. Having a better camera, yes, may technically give you a better image, higher resolution, a sharper image from a better lens, whatever. But just because you have a, a $10,000 camera is not going to make you a better photographer overnight. And I'd like to say, I'd like to add that a lot of these concepts are, I'd say almost all of them, translate directly over to cinematography as well. In cinematography, you're shooting 24 frames a second, and it's my firm belief that you should be able to take any one of those 24 frames and convert it into an image that would be interesting and compelling and well-framed, well-shot, well-exposed, everything. So a filmmaker is, is nothing more than an extension of a still photographer, vice versa. Obviously, you're telling different kinds of stories with different tools, but you can shoot a wonderful film on an iPhone. You don't need a red camera. Okay, so how do we decide what it is we want to do? For the purposes of this podcast, I'm not going to talk so much about things like wedding photography or sports photography. Uh, I'm going to talk about more creative things, sort of maybe if we're talking portraiture, landscape photography, or astrophotography, or still life, or street photography, things like that. Macro photography is a, is a unique skill, and, and, and ultra high speed photography is a unique skill. There's a lot of science involved in those, a lot of technique, a lot of technical understanding. So I'm not going to get so much into that. I'm going to just sort of cover the basics about how we become more quote-unquote creative. So let's just assume that we want to expand our creativity in artistic photography. So what is it that you need to do to achieve this? So we've decided here we, here's what we want to do. What do we need to do to get there? Well, this stage of the process is called pre-production, and it's the same whether you're doing a film or whether you're doing photography or even fixing your car. You need to collect the tools. You need to read about what you're doing. You need to be prepared for the task at hand. And the same thing goes for photography. You need to be mentally ready. You need to have your skills in order. You need to have your equipment in order. You need to have your location in order, your model in order, your sets in order, your time of day in order, your lighting, blah, 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 blah. So you should ask yourself three questions with any photograph. Is it something that you really want to do? Because good photography will eat up a lot of time. So is it something you really want to invest in time-wise and possibly money-wise? Is it if you need to buy a new lens or rent a lens or whatever? Is it something that you feel you need to do? Is it something that you feel will expand your creative uh, mindset, your repertoire? Your, is it something that you've always wanted to do that you've never tried? Don't just do something over and over and over if you feel that you've gotten good at it. So if there's something that you find you've developed a niche, then go for it. But if you're just a general photographer like most people, I think the best advice would be to follow all sorts of different paths and find one that you really like. Whether it's like all of a sudden I fell in love with taking pictures of animals or I fell in love with studio portraiture or I fell in love with product photography or sports photography. Unless you try all those different avenues, you'll never really know what it is you like to do. And then the last one really is just should I do it? Is it an ethical picture? Is it something that I'll feel good walking away from when I'm finished? Is it something that I'll feel good showing other people? Is it something that will benefit more than just me? Uh, I'm not a big fan of exploitative photography. I'm not a big fan of, of taking photos just sort of TMZ style. So you stock a celebrity walking down the street just so you can sell it to you know TMZ for 10 bucks. I'm not a big fan of that kind of photography. So, you know, ask yourself those simple questions. Is it something that's really something that you really should be doing? 
Then once you've answered all those questions, then the next step is what is it, what is it that you really need to capture this image? And how much pre-planning will you have to do? There's a thing in photography called pre-visualization. It's a big thing in film called storyboard. Uh, and not a lot of people do it in still photography at the sort of amateur to mid-level. When you're doing product photography or when you're doing uh, fashion photography or, or things like that, a lot of people will, you know, it's called a comp. They'll, they'll make up a comp, which is a, they'll either use Photoshop or just hand draw it or whatever. And it gives them an idea of the composition of the photo. It gives them an idea of the end frame that they want to achieve. It will also help you to see problems ahead of time. Uh, when you sort of just map it out uh, on paper or on a screen, you'll see sort of maybe challenges from the props you might need or the location you might need. Anyway, previs is a short for it. Previs is a is an integral part of photography, I think. But on the other hand, you don't want to let it interfere with the spontaneous aspect of photography. Obviously, you can't really pre-visualize a street photograph or a, something you might take at a county fair or whatever. Those are more just haphazard, spontaneous moments that you're there and ready to capture. But we'll get into that much more uh, in a little bit. There's nothing wrong with looking through magazines or whatever to find a photograph that you want to try to imitate. A lot of painters, for instance, paint from photography, and some people have different opinions of that. But what I'm saying is that it's not a, not a bad thing to go through and say, hey, here's an amazing photo in Popular Mechanics that I want to try to replicate or National Geographic or whatever, the, whatever it is you see. And, and that functions as this inspiration for you. Let that be an inspiration that takes you forward in your creative work and say, hey, you know, this is great. I'm going to steal a little bit of this because all artists steal from everybody else. It's, it's, it's rare to have somebody that's so unique that hasn't borrowed from something uh, that they've seen along the course of their life. But also when you're looking at whatever it is you want to imitate, look carefully for the details in that shot because photography is all about the details, as is filmmaking. The details matter. And the details are what tell the story. So when you're analyzing other works of photography or filmmaking, look at the details. Look at what they've chosen to show, what they've not chosen to show, how they've lit it, how the color is, how the movement of the camera is. Is it blurry? Is it tack sharp in a film? Is it a fast shot, slow shot, dolly in, dolly out, that kind of thing? What is the effect? Did they use an effect? Is there an obvious uh, Lightroom effect that is on the photograph? Because these days, every effect, you know, Instagram is littered with fake pictures that have replaced skies and, and foregrounds and colors. And I mean, there's a million advertisements everywhere you look for software that'll instantly create a, an incredibly photoshopped image for you. So it's getting harder and harder to tell what's authentic and what's not. But on the other hand, when you look at an image that's obviously been photoshopped, you know, that's something that's that's going to require a whole new skill set for you if that's something that you want to really do is, is be interested into the post-processing end of things, because there you can just go on forever. Okay, so we've, we've decided what kind of photography we want to do. We've decided sort of more or less what kind of image we want to make. Um, we've pre-visited a little bit. I feel strongly that there are three ways to the end product, whether it's photography or a film. The first stage, you make your picture once when you pre-visit, when you, when you come up with the idea, when you have that image in your mind of a, certain, of a certain photograph or a certain shot that you want to make. That's step one. You've created the image mentally or down on a piece of paper. 
Now, step two is to make that happen. And so if you go out and try to make that happen, in, in a film, for instance, that would be writing the script. You've written the script. You've come up with the idea on paper. Then you go to shoot it. So then you go out in the world and you try to get that shot of whatever it is you're trying to get or make your film. So you've made your film or your photograph a second time during the actual process of the creation of the image. Then you're going to have a third chance to remake that image in the post-processing phase or in the editing phase of a film. And throughout each one of these stages, your end product will more or less change uh, either somewhat or drastically. I think it's very rare for a photograph to be comped and shot and post-processed so that it's identical to the original idea. There's always going to be some small change, some small uh, tweak that's going to be made, something that's going to be learned on set while you're shooting it, or some, something that you can see in post-production that can make it a little better. So in a film, that would be a script. You're shooting it. You've made changes to the script while you shoot it, so it's basically a different film. And then you've made changes to that material that you've shot when you edit it. So it's a third film, because now you're choosing on how you show the material that you've shot. So just like in a photograph, be ready for those changes. Be open to those changes. Be ready to see them and embrace them. You Sometimes it's very serendipitous when you're actually filming or shooting and you see something, something happens on set that you weren't prepared for, that you didn't anticipate. And you need to be open to those moments and not close them out. A lot of people just say, nope, that's not what I wanted. Okay, maybe it's not what I wanted originally, but maybe it's my original idea with an extra grain of uh, spice that makes it actually a little better. So in artistic endeavors, it's always essential to keep an open mind about your work because you never know what moment just might fall out of the sky and, and give you a, a flash of genius that you never expected. When you dream up an image, again, ask yourself those simple questions. Is, is it a shot you like? Why is it a shot you like? Um, why does it work for you? What kind of image are you drawn to? Are you drawn to high-key images, which are mostly very brightly lit images? Are you drawn to low-key or darker images? Are you drawn to wide landscapes? Or are you drawn to extreme close-ups of flowers or portraits or whatever it is? Be comfortable identifying what it is that you like and why. And during the creative process, always be looking, always be ready to pounce on an opportunity that presents itself. But that requires an expert knowledge of your photographic skills and equipment, which we'll get into in a little bit. So my three mental concepts of photography are the shots that you previs, that you come up with an idea, you've decided why it works for you, why you want to do it, study why it works, study why it's attractive to you, study why it's something you want to do, and then you go out and do it, try to do it. Or uh, it's more of a spontaneous sort of uh, grab the moment kind of photography, like street photography. So maybe you've had an idea in your head and now you spend time walking around trying to see that idea in reality. And when it happens, you need to be ready photographically with your skills and your equipment to take advantage of the moment. Third, and this is one of my favorite ways to make an image, is say you've gone on a trip and you've shot a couple thousand pictures and you come home. And in my case, I remember most of the photographs I've taken. Maybe that's why I'm a photographer, because I have a very visual memory. But a lot of times I may have forgotten just one snap here, one snap there. Or I took a series of photos, high speed, and I wasn't aware of each frame. And when you go back and you go through your images and you find one that just sticks out and you don't remember actually shooting it, that's a golden moment, a wonderful moment that you can then delve into that image and create something that you see in the image that perhaps you didn't actually see when you shot it. This is why I highly encourage people not to delete images in the field. A lot of people will take a photo and right away, if they don't like it, they delete it. 
or they'll go home to the hotel and they'll delete a bunch of images all night long. Well, instead of worrying about the pictures you don't like, worry about the pictures you do like. So I highly, and, and storage is so cheap. Cards are so cheap. Don't worry about emptying your card. Don't spend the time on your vacation worrying about the, the shots that didn't work because you don't know someday... Maybe when you get home, maybe a month later, maybe a year later, you might be going through those images and all of a sudden one of those photos that you originally did not like, all of a sudden you see something in it that really strikes a chord with you and you're like, oh my God, I can reach into that image and pull that out of there and make a really cool photograph that I did not see originally. So some examples of that would be sometimes when I go to Africa, I have images in my mind of how I would like to shoot animals. I've always wanted a, a lion laying down in, in grass at sunrise, you know, looking at me. And, and one time in Uganda, I came across that situation. It was perfect. And I, I asked the, the driver to stop because it was the photo that I'd been seeing in my mind for a long time. And there it was. And I only had a few seconds, minutes, maybe two or three minutes before the, the angle of the sun changed too much. And I was lucky enough to get the image I'd always wanted of that kind of lion. And it really works for me. Some people aren't moved by it, but some, but it really works for me. The street photography thing, the opportunistic thing, is when you go to a street fair or something, and maybe you've always wanted a shot of uh, a parent carrying their child on their shoulders with a, a cotton candy, and, and it's a sunny day, and there's people, and this is some sort of image you saw somewhere, and you really want to, to duplicate that image. Well, when you see that in public, you need to be ready, and you need to be ready without a thought, and this is where we're going to head down this trail is how you get to that point where it becomes second nature, where your brain is actually seeing the photo, your eye is actually directing the photo, and your hand is actually making the photo with the equipment. That's where we want to get to. So how do we get there, though? It requires seeing reality in a different way. It requires a disassociative experience, as I like to call it. It requires unplugging your brain from your eyes for a little while, or even severing the connection and rebuilding it learning how to walk again, learning how to see again, learning how to think about what you're seeing all over again. Because as children, we're not really taught to be objective about what it is we're seeing. We just see and people will say, hey, there's a car coming down the road, get out of the way. Or when the stove is orange, don't touch it, it's hot. Or when there's uh, whatever, you're, you're taught to see dangers, you're taught to see pleasures, you're taught to see things in the world from an objective sort of useful utilitarian point of view. In photography, you need to sort of distance yourself from that kind of thinking. You need to walk away from what your brain might be telling you is not the thing you want to be doing. In other words, I'm not saying put yourself in danger photography-wise, but sometimes when you're in the moment, when something's happening around you, say you go to a protest or something, you need to tune all of that out or a lot of it out anyway, and focus just on the moment and just on, the, on, on what it is you're trying to capture, the essence of the moment. And that requires really learning to tune out all of the things you've been taught all your life to pay attention to and only focus on the image, only focus on that box. And that's what I mean by thinking inside the box. You have to put your brain and tunnel it into that frame, into that, that little 35 millimeter frame, and really understand what's going on in that little frame so that you can communicate it to the rest of the world because that's your unique vision. What's going on in that little box and how you show it to others and how you tell a story through that box, that's the ultimate goal. That's what 
makes you unique. That's what defines your photography from other photography is how you've decided to shape what goes on in that little square box. Because we don't walk around seeing the world in little rectangular boxes, excuse me. We go around seeing the world in an, in an almost 360 VR kind of way always on, always moving, always focused, always exposed, right? And and we never really think about how it is we communicate that vision to others. And that's the goal, how you communicate your vision to others. So a good way to start is start by critically thinking everything it is you see. Really start paying attention. I hate to say it, but in my experience, most people in this world are incredibly unobservant, and a lot of people just simply don't pay attention to what's going on around them. And I firmly believe that 99% of life is just simply paying attention, and the other 1% is actually doing something about it. So start by simply unplugging a few wires in your brain and replugging them into the analytical part. So start watching light. Start watching shadows. Start paying attention to these things that you take for granted every day. Pay attention to texture. Pay attention to shape. Pay attention to shadow and light and focus. Pay attention to motion. Pay attention to the way things are stacked up and perspective. Pay attention to the way things look from different angles, whether you're on top or on bottom or sideways or whatever. Pay attention Pay attention to the way things interact with each other visually, how the light plays off different surfaces, whether they're a shiny surface or a dull surface, how the shadows move, what creates a shadow, what creates a different kind of shadow, what kind of colors appear differently in what kind of light. Do you see the same at night as you do during the day? Do you see the same in a room that's lit with a candle as you do in a room that's lit with daylight? Because in a normal course of events, we take all of these things for granted. We walk down in our, we go from a, a bright, sunny living room down to our basement, and we don't even think about it. Our eyes adjust, the lighting changes, everything changes, but to our brain, it's a perfectly natural environment and everything works. This is what I want you to sort of, this is the, the process, the beginning of unconnection is really unconnecting that automatic response from your brain, stopping for a moment, even if a brief second, to ask yourself, what has changed in my world when I went to room A to room B? Because your brain normally just corrects and everybody's like, oh, whatever. But if you actually stop just for a second and, and ask yourself, what has changed? That's your first step. What's changed? Because in photography, you need to learn how to make those changes. That's the key, is you need to learn to replicate those situations and you need to learn what changes it is to make that recreates that that sense that you're feeling in the basement so when you go down in the basement why are people scared it's dark it's moody there's lots of shadows you can't see much so pay attention to that connection the emotion that comes with a certain scene that's the goal the end goal is to create a story and an emotion that expresses your intent through the image, whether it's compositionally, whether it's color-wise, lighting-wise, shadow, light, dance, whatever. Your image needs to evoke an emotion. It needs to tell a story. It needs to shape all of those things in a split second in a box. Most people will look at an image just for a few seconds. So you only have a few seconds to convey emotion, story, setting, a mood, all of those things. So start paying attention to your own movie because it plays 24 hours a day. All you have to do is open your eyes. It's a free movie and it makes you feel and it makes you cry and it makes you laugh and it makes you angry what you see through your own eyes. And it's like 
I said, it's a free movie. You don't have to watch TV to get that experience. You don't have to go to the movies to get that experience because it's in front of you every single day. All you have to do is pay attention. Okay, technically, here's where we start to get a little technical. You start walking around or when you're driving or whatever. I like to do this in the car because there's nothing else to do. Is start to look at things through that 35 millimeter box. Try to sort of crop your eyesight, and it takes practice, but crop your eyesight and sort of start to take little mental images with your mind a thousand times a day. So if I'm driving in my driver's seat and I look over to the right passenger window, how would I frame the, the right passenger rearview mirror? How would I take a good photo of that if my perspective from the driver? So do I zoom in and just show just the mirror? Do I zoom out and show the window and the door handle in the foreground and maybe the air conditioner, the, 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 the vent, the air vent in the, in the dashboard alongside of it? Do I zoom out even further and show the, the handle above the door where you hold on to when somebody's driving like an idiot? Or do I show the rear view mirror ultra wide and the, and the mirror and the side mirror? Do I show what's in the pocket of the door below the side mirror? Do I show the floor mat, the carpet? So just sort of zoom in and out and use your eyes with different focal length lenses. So try a telephoto, which means you zoom in a lot. Try a wide angle and just sort of start to crop the image in your mind a hundred times a day and just focus on something. Focus on the car in front of you. I mean, don't, don't crash, but look around or even in your own house when you're walking around your house, if it's dirty or cluttered or whatever, or clean, start to look at it a little differently. If you, if you have a mess on your desk, don't look at it as a mess on your desk. Look at it as a photographic opportunity. How do I convey the mess on my desk to someone else? Yes, it may bother me. My OCD may be going crazy, but stop for a moment before you pick it all up, look at it and say, what is unique about this mess? How is this mess different than others? How is the light on this mess? How is the composition on this mess? What is what what makes this mess a unique thing to look at? And that's an ex, an assignment I I always give my students is just take everyday photos but make them look unique in a way. Think about what you see every day just in a slightly different way. That's the goal of disconnecting your brain is is reshaping how you see everyday items, everyday occurrences, everyday nuisances, everyday joys, everyday whatever it is. Just start to look at things differently and and think about how would I convey that? How would I convey my sense of OCD mess on my desk to someone else? How would I make someone else uncomfortable by looking at my mess? Because my mess makes me uncomfortable if you're like me and I feel compelled to clean it up. How do I convey that to somebody else? If you're not like that, then maybe something else triggers some emotion inside of you and makes you uneasy or makes you joyful. And, and you want to convey that to some, maybe it's just what you had for lunch. Maybe you just made an incredible sandwich and you can't wait to eat it. And you've been thinking about it all morning. And that sandwich is going to bring you such joy. How do I take a wonderful shot of that sandwich, for instance, for Food and Wine magazine? How do I make that sandwich? How do I bring the joy that I'm feeling about eating that sandwich to someone else? How do I make it look so attractive? Because a photo is 2D and there's no smells. So I need to convey the sense of that sandwich in, in every possible way. Okay, again, you don't need a camera to do this, just lots of practice. Try it every day and slowly, 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 this is the process of training your brain, training your brain to think inside the box. Just think, think, think all day long. And then at the end of the day, when you're ready, or the next day when you pick up your camera and you're ready to go, you'll have a much more intuitive sense of how, how things play out within that box. Find photos you like and then try to find similar events in reality. 
find something that really, that, 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 like a sunset or a, or a bird photograph, and then pay attention and find those photographs in reality. Make them happen mentally for you, even if you don't have your camera. A lot of things are just best remembered, and you'll see lots of photographic moments where you say, damn, I wish I had my camera. But really, you've, you've enjoyed that moment. That moment has brought you pleasure, and that's fine. And then every time you remember that moment, you'll feel the same thing. You don't always need to take a photo of everything that, that appeals to you. And I strongly encourage you to do that while you're on vacation or safari or wherever you're going. Don't live the entire experience with your eye in the viewfinder. Bring the camera down. Enjoy it the way you were designed to enjoy it, with your brain and your eyes the way they were originally connected. Don't always spend your moments of hoping to see whatever it is you're seeing uh, with that disconnected mental state, because in the disconnected mental state, you, like I said earlier, you're a much more objective viewer because you're thinking about light and exposure and focus and depth of field. You're not thinking, though, so much about the instantaneous sub subconscious emotion that that scene that you've just seen with your eyes brings you. Again, look for foregrounds, look for backgrounds, look for lighting situations, look for um, different subjects. Um, zoom in, zoom out. The more you understand about technical things, the better, actually. When you're thinking about lens choice, so if I'm, if I'm sitting in my car and I want to shoot something outside of my car, am I going to use a 24 millimeter? Am I going to use a 35 millimeter or a 50 or an 85 or a 105 or a 200? Start to understand what those different lenses are. In the filmmaking business, there's a product you can buy called a director's viewfinder, and it's basically a little scope, little tiny thing you hold, and you rotate a dial on it and it changes your perspective. It basically crops the image for you right there so you can see it. Now, if you're a great director, a great cinematographer, you, you won't always need one of those because in your mind, you can crop the image mentally yourself. Like, okay, I, I know that a 105 is going to give me this portion of this scene that I want to show, or a 24 millimeter is going to show me more of what I want to show. But you also understand the limitations of each lens, so a wide-angle lens can introduce distortion. A telephoto lens is, is, for most viewers, obviously telephoto because of the way it stacks up items within the frame. So it causes the relationship that is normal between a foreground item and a background item to change from what you're, nor what you're used to seeing, what your, what your original brain connection tells you should be correct. So the more you can learn about the lenses that you have at your disposal, the more you can learn about the limitations of your camera or the aspect ratio, the, the actual dimensions of the box that you're looking through, the better you'll become at this practice. So this brings us to a basic introduction uh, or a basic review, I should say, of photographic concepts or, or photographic essentials, I should say. So we've started to feel our light. We've started to see our light. We've started to understand how light differs and how shadows differ, how the highlights change. Now we need to understand how to control those items, how to actually translate that, what we see, onto what the camera sees. And this is another exceedingly important component of this process. Not only training your brain to see through that box, but training your brain to actually see the images the same way a camera sees. So instead of the digic processor in your Canon camera, the DIVIC, whatever they call it, you're going to take that processor out of the camera and you're going to plug it in your brain. And that is the best way to start to actually really make the, the photographic dreams come true is by training your brain to actually process light, to process motion in the same way a camera does. And this, again, takes a lot of practice, but I've never met anyone who can't do it. So in, in other words, we need to figure out what are the limitations 
What are the tools? What are the features of a camera that allow me to do this? So basically there's three. There's the aperture, which is the size of the hole in the lens in which the light travels through to hit the, the sensor in your camera or film. There's the amount of time that the, the light is allowed to hit that sensor, the shutter speed. And then there is the sensitivity of the sensor or film that you're working with. So is it very sensitive to light? Is it not so sensitive to light? Those are your three basic components of a still photograph. Those are really, there's other tools, yes, of course. You can use a flash or you can use artificial lighting or you can use different lenses, but each camera is going to come with those three basic controls. What do they do? Well, the aperture, besides controlling how much light is allowed to hit the, the sensor, it controls what is in focus. It controls a thing called depth of field. So depth of field basically is the measurement of the nearest item that's in focus in your frame to the farthest item that's in focus in your frame. So it could be everything is in focus in your frame and that would be unlimited depth of field or infinite depth of field. It could be a very narrow thing that somebody's just, just their tip of their nose to their eyebrows are in focus. So that's about an inch, maybe half an inch. So your depth of field there would be called very narrow or very shallow depth of field because it's only a, an inch or a half an inch. So if that person moves forward or backwards, their eyebrows are going to go out of focus and maybe their ears will become in focus. And that's what Aperture does. Aperture controls how much that depth of field plays within your image. So a wide aperture, a 2.8 or a 1.4, for instance, the smaller the number, the bigger the app, the bigger the hole. So a 2.8 is going to allow you less depth of field. So it's going to be harder to keep things in focus. So it's going to be more shallow. So a shorter distance between what's in and what's out of focus. As you progress through the apertures, 2.8, 5.6, 8, 11, 16, as you get up into the 16, 11 and 16 range, more and more and more and more of things will be focused. If you shoot, for instance, at f22 or f32, pretty much everything in the photo will be in focus from the very closest foreground element to the farthest mountains in the background. It'll all be in focus. So a, a key question is when you're, when you're showing a picture, what is the goal? What is, what is it you're trying to show people? In a wonderful photograph or a film frame, like I said earlier, you only have a couple seconds in which you, you're actually controlling someone else's life. And that's a, a unique way to think about it, but it's true. A photograph or a film, you have a couple moments where you're actually controlling what somebody else thinks, sees, feels. And that is the goal. That is what makes wonderful photography. That is what makes wonderful filmmaking is when somebody, for just a second, you've taken over everything about their life and you've given them an experience. That is, that's magic when that happens. It's pure magic. And I think a lot of people, when they say, I love this photograph or I love this painting, a lot of people may say that, but they really don't know why. It's like, yes, you just looked at it and you felt something. But why? Why did you feel that? Well, it's because the artist chose what to show you and how to show you. And depth of field is an incredibly important tool to take those few moments of someone's time and focus their mind essentially very quickly on what it is you want them to see. Now, obviously, if it's a landscape and you want them to feel the, the, the grandeur of the landscape, then you want everything in focus or most of it. If it is a, a more emotional scene where you really want to say it's a person in darkness and they're doing something and, and their eyes are what's telling the story, you want to you wanna take the moment you have with the viewer and you want to send them right to that person's eyes. You don't want them wandering around the frame trying to figure out what the story is. You want to go right to that subject's eyes. And, and one way to do that is with depth of field because you make everything else in the frame out of focus. 
And so the viewer really has no choice but to, to go immediately to what's in focus. And you've taken, you've actually controlled this, the reality for the viewer. And that's what you're doing. You're controlling someone else's reality just for a couple seconds. And it sounds, uh, you know, crazy, but it's true. So aperture, depth of field, and obviously amount of light. The other thing you have is shutter speed. Shutter speed is pretty basic. It changes the amount of time that light is allowed to hit the sensor or film. But it also controls a sense of motion. The longer the shutter is open, things are moving in the frame tend to be blurry or will be blurry. And the shorter the shutter is open, things will be much more sharp. So for instance, Sports Illustrated would use shutter speeds of 500th of a second or more to make sure that the catch, the, the pitch, whatever, is tack sharp. They want to freeze that, that time, that slice of time. Whereas you can also use a slower shutter speed and then allow things to move and you create a sense of motion or blur, motion blur. And the last one you have is ISO or sensitivity. So it's basically the volume of the sensor. So are you turning the sensor way up to get as much volume off of that sensor as possible, or do you have it turned way down? Imagine a tape recorder, if you will, if, if you've ever heard of, a, of an analog tape recorder. When the volume was very high, you could hear the hiss from the tape, or the, you could really hear the scratches in the record, or, or even now you can hear background noises in the digital recording or whatever. So the more you turn it up, the more unnecessary output you'll also receive via noise. And this happens in a digital photograph. If you if you use an ISO of say 6,000 or above, you'll you'll start to see a lot of weird little colored dots in the shadows and everywhere. That's the noise. You'll get red ones and green ones and blue ones. Modern cameras are pretty good, and post processing is pretty good at removing it. But nonetheless, that's the trade off from using a higher ISO, which allows more light to come off of the sensor. It, it amplifies the signal of the sensor, but it's also amplifying the noise of the sensor. So those are the three basic functions of a camera that you have, and you need to learn how they all sort of interact and, and the advantages and disadvantages of using each one. Each one of those functions is measured in thirds of stops or halves of stops with your f-stop in order to maintain the same exposure. I won't get deeply into that, but suffice to say, becoming a really good photographer or cinematographer means that you have all of these relationships memorized and comfortable in your brain. You've taught you the, the photo computer in your brain that a third of a stop up in ISO means a third of a stop down somewhere else or vice versa in the shutter speed, and you know what those numbers are. You have them all memorized, and you, you understand that if you go from 500 to 800 in a certain place or F2 to F6 uh, in a certain other place, then you may need to change your ISO from 250 to 3200 or, you know, all of those different mathematical relationships. Uh, and this is the first step into training the DIVIC sensor, the DIVIC computer inside your brain, so that these relationships, these uh, functions are second nature. Because when you're shooting street photography, for instance, or wildlife photography, usually the moments that you want to capture happen very briefly and only happen one time. So if you're not really ready to compute what it is that you need to do with your camera, that moment will be gone. If you stop there to think about it, you've lost the image. So you really need to have these things pre-sort of sorted out within your brain. Uh, you can also just put the camera on auto, of course, but then you're not really learning anything. Uh, in that sense, you're only practicing your composition, your storytelling. You're not really practicing photography as a, as a craft. Another function on your camera is the, that's very important is called the white balance. What is white balance? Well, your brain is so good at seeing light that very few people 
take a moment to actually realize and understand or think about what kind of light it is they're actually seeing. For instance, sunlight, if, you are, if, you're, if you're familiar with the spectrum that you learned in junior high science, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet, Roy G. Biv for short, nice guy. If you look at sunlight, the sunlight that you're seeing is composed mainly of the blue, violet, indigo spectrum, especially, say, at noon or on a cloudy day. Uh, there's, there's not a whole lot of red. I mean, if you were to plot out the, like a graph, like a spectrum, you would see a big shift towards the blues and the indigos and the violets and, and not so much in the reds and the oranges and the yellows and the greens. Now, if you have a tungsten lamp, which is a, basically a hot glowing wire inside of a glass bulb, not so, not so common anymore, but if you were to plot that graph, you would see a whole lot of yellows and reds and oranges and not a whole lot of blues and indigos and violets. Now, your brain, your brain can tell the difference, and your brain automatically adjusts for those different lighting situations, and most people are completely unaware. But if you stand inside your kitchen or living room, for instance, and you have some window light hitting a white surface, and you really unplug that connection, and you really start to think about it like a camera, you'll see that that white surface appears blue. If you really, really disconnect all of the things you've learned and plug in your camera, you'll see a blue surface. You won't you, it'll appear white, of course, but it'll appear whitish blue. Now, if you take that surface and sh turn on an old school light in your kitchen, for instance, and allow that light to hit the white surface and you unplug your, your normal brain, you will see that that white surface now appears orangish, yellowish because the light component is much more orange and yellow. Now, if you weren't paying attention, you would see white in both cases. You would understand that surface to be white in both cases. But in reality, one surface is actually quite blue and one surface is actually quite orange. And in order for your brain to think more like a camera, so your camera is always looking for something white. And what it does when it sees something white is it analyzes the light that's coming from that white surface. It has a spectrometer inside the camera and it automatically can sense, or a color meter in photography, it automatically can sense how much blue is in that light, how much orange is in that light. And it, it on auto white balance, it makes up for that. It makes that, that correction immediately just like your brain would do. But in most cases, you're not leaving your camera on auto, you're leaving it on manual. So you need to help your camera sometimes understand the light that it's seeing. And so that's the white balance setting. So you'll see a light bulb, you'll see a sun, you'll see a cloudy sky, you'll see, a, you'll see various symbols. What those symbols mean, besides trying to give you a hint at the light source that, that it, the camera is wanting to see, it's basically a measurement of, how, of the spectrum of the light. And that measurement is called degrees Kelvin. And it's, it's a measurement of the technical term would be if you had a, a radiating black box and you heat that black box up. As, as it increases in temperature, it will go from black, it will start to glow orange, just like a fire, just like uh, when you heat up iron, for instance. It will go from orange to, to you know yellow to white. And then if it gets really hot, it'll go to blue and violet and indigo. And so Kelvin is a measurement of temperature, not actual temperature, something you could feel, but light temperature as, as if it were a radiating black box. So for instance, candlelight or a tungsten lamp, the tungsten lamp is 3,200 degrees Kelvin, where daylight, open daylight, noon, is around 5,500 degrees Kelvin. And you can see this on your camera if you go into this white balance setting, you can actually adjust the degrees Kelvin. That's what that number means. You're adjusting for the amount of orange and blue in the light. That's all you're doing.
but it's important to understand how that plays into your scene because if you use the wrong white balance outdoors everything will look orange or blue if you use it in the wrong white balance indoors it'll all look too orange or too blue and if you really screw it up there's not much you can do to fix it so again your eyes automatically adjust for this and your eye you don't you don't even think about it it's white is white right well, my door in my bedroom is white no matter what light shines on it you always know it's white um, but that's not the case with a camera so you have to help your camera a little bit because it's sometimes it's kind of dumb again so as you look around try to be aware of what color of light you're seeing so how does the light change from morning to noon back to sunset how does the how does the color of someone's face change that's very important how does the skin tones change how do the greens and the foliage change and also become acutely aware of this because color is an important ingredient in how you convey your image or what what emotion you're trying to convey there's whole books written about color color behavioral science all those all that kind of thing so we're seeing the light, we're understanding the light, we're understanding the color of the light, we're understanding how the light falls. Now, another thing you need to limit yourself with with a camera is what's called dynamic range. Uh, your brain has pretty good dynamic range, which means the ability for the highest highlight and the darkest shadow. What you can resolve, what you can see, what kind of details reside within the brightest part of the scene and the darkest part of the scene. With your brain, it's pretty natural. You can look almost anywhere except directly at the sun and you can see detail. So you have to understand how to control the light that your camera sees in order to maintain detail in what you want to show to people. That's called your, your overall exposure. Now we could spend a whole nother podcast just on exposure, simply on exposure. Suffice it to say, it's important to understand on a basic level, the brightest thing that your camera can see and the darkest thing your camera can see, because you can push the darkest part by elevating the ISO, by turning up the volume on the chip, but then you'll get noise. Or you can control the brightest part of what your camera sees, but then that will eliminate the darker parts in your scene. So then your shadows will become completely black. That's your dynamic range and how you shift what is the brightest to the darkest and how much detail resides in each one of those things is a lesson for another day. Just a simple understanding of, of the range of capabilities of your camera uh, is, is a wise thing to understand. And also that ties into a histogram and how to, how, to, how to properly use a histogram. But we won't talk about that today either. That's a whole other hour-long lecture. Start to, think, start to see things blurry and sharp. Uh, understand how, uh, how your depth of field works, how your motion works. Learn focal lengths. Learn wide, medium, and close. Learn how those lenses interact with foreground and background. Learn how those lenses shape your uh, uh, perception of reality. Uh, for instance, a 50 millimeter lens is considered a quote unquote normal lens. That's what most replicates human eyesight. Um, so anything lower than that, lower than that 50 number is considered wide angle and anything above that number is considered telephoto. Uh, obviously different degrees, but uh, generally speaking, a 50 millimeter lens is what you see every day. So experiment imagining what things would look like with a 24 or a 105 or 85 or whatever it is you might be thinking. Another important thing about camera is where you choose to put it. Do you choose high angle, low angle, on the ground, up in the sky, with a drone? Do you move it? Do you, do you keep it at eye level? Angle is very important. We walk around, us humans, and we, we tend to see things from, you know, five feet to six feet above the ground uh, all the time. That's a very sort of comfortable angle for us to see everything that goes on. 
Now you'll notice if you put the ground camera on the ground or you lift it up high, people will immediately clue into that and it will change their perception immediately of the reality that they're viewing. So photojournalism, for instance, is always sort of trying to replicate a reality in an artistic way, but also in a truthful way. So they're not trying to distort what it is you're seeing. Whereas in a more creative photography, the distortion is allowable, if not encouraged. When you're photographing a street scene, for instance, or a protest or, or wildlife or whatever, to the best of your ability, always keep moving. Don't ever stay in one place. One place is boring. If you're, if you're in one place and you've shot that shot, then move. Because in a lot of times, that shot's not going to change significantly. So once you've captured that specific point of view, that angle, move, move, move. Find something different. Find a new way to see that reality. Find a new way to tell that story. Moving is essential. It's essential in life. It's essential in photography. You have to keep moving. Always keep seeing things from different angles, different perspectives. Don't get comfortable. Keep it moving. Keep it moving. Try high. Try low. Try left. Try right. Sometimes all you have to do is move a foot to your right, and all of a sudden, the tree you're trying to take a picture of looks completely different, the foreground is different, everything works. Whereas if you just stay where you originally were, you're going to have some sort of thing in the foreground that you don't really like, and the branches don't really have the right angle. So again, constantly be moving. These are other tools that you can practice in your brain, uh, and that you're training your brain to do to see reality differently. It's always keep moving. And again, to practice these things, you must literally take thousands of photographs. It's not going to come easy. It's not going to come quickly. Um, but you must take thousands of photographs or shoot a lot of movies. I mean, that's why a lot of directors shoot short movies before they shoot features. It's practice. They're practicing their storytelling skills. And that's what you need to do with photography. And luckily, these days, digital photography is pretty cheap. Uh, you can take a thousand pictures on your iPhone and it costs you absolutely nothing. Again, shoot, 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 shoot. I always have my camera with me as much as I possibly can uh, or my iPhone or whatever. Uh, shoot, 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 always. What about the artistic stuff? What, what exactly do we need to think about that way? So you've disconnected sort of the reality part of your brain and you've disconnected sort of the, the thinking part of your brain and you've started to think like a camera and you've started to see the world in that box and you've started to decide what features, what elements you're going to put into that box. Now comes the fun part. How do we arrange those elements within that box to tell the story? How do we take a viewer's eye for just a split second or two or three seconds? And how do we guide them through that frame, that window? That's a window into your world, into your thinking. But how do we take them on a little journey through that frame from foreground to midground to background or left to right or top to bottom? How do we take them on a journey that, ex that conveys a story, an emotion, a setting, a mood, a tone, whatever it may be? That's the key. And obviously that's the first word is composition. How do we arrange the elements within that frame in order to to steal someone's reality for just a few seconds and give them a story they didn't think was coming. That's the brilliance of, of filmmaking for me, is to create an, a world in which these characters live, to create a world in which these things happen visually as a cinematographer and as a photographer, to create a reality that people may not be comfortable with or used to seeing or surprising in a new way or very comforting, for instance, in a new way. Or you can take a photo of a Swiss valley in the Alps and the way you compose it allows that person to have a, just a brief three or four or five second journey through that valley. 
They can follow the stream from the foreground into the midground. They stop for a moment and maybe look at the farmhouse that you've chosen to put in the middle, or maybe there was a cow in the foreground. Then they continue on the stream. The stream disappears towards the background. It lifts up into a forest, which lifts up into the peaks. And so your eye goes from the bottom of the photo, sort of the, the lush green valley floor, travels through the mid-ground where you might have a small town or a, or a village, and then it goes up the side of the valley into the mountains where it sees the snow and the trees and, and maybe a sunset or something. There you've given people a little journey through that Swiss valley in one photo. Now, if you're a filmmaker, obviously you can do a little bit more. You can actually take them on a journey. But in one photo, you've done that. For instance, if you're shooting a village in Africa and some ladies cooking dinner for their children, how you frame that scene where, you, where the children are, where the food is, where the fire is, where the women are, that allows the viewer a few seconds to, to just enjoy that moment with that family. The lighting, the firelight, the, the fire under the pot, the steam coming off of the, the, the whatever they're cooking, the, the children, the clothes, the dirt, the village, whatever it is. You can settle in with that image for a few seconds and really get a sense of what that reality must be. That's a good photograph. A good exercise is just to sit in one place and use your head and move around and see how many photos you can tell or how many photos you can take mentally that sort of convey a, a different feeling, a different image. You can use naturally occurring things within your frame, trees and buildings, whatever, to, to sort of to block people in. So if you don't want people wandering around, which is the worst thing you can have in a, in a photograph or a film, is somebody's eye wandering through the frame trying to figure out what it is they're supposed to look at. You don't want that. That's, that's, that's not what you want. You want to focus someone's attention because you only have it for a few seconds. And if someone gets bored and doesn't know where they're going to look, they move on to the next picture. But you have them for three or four seconds. Focus them. You're controlling their brain for that instant. Make it work. Make it worthy of their time that they gave you. They're surrendering their, their reality just for a moment to you, and you're controlling it just for a moment. So make it worth their while. You can, like I said, you can use naturally occurring frame lines to box them in, to force them to look at a certain thing. Because once your eye reaches a, a, a frame at the edge, it'll bounce back in. But if it's just an open frame with nothing there, it tends to wander out and then come back in and wander out and come back in. So really give them a visual journey to follow or a focal point to right away that they look at a picture and there's no question that that's what they're supposed to see. Again, though, on the other hand, once you're shooting, uh, take a quick scan around the frame inside your camera and make sure there aren't any errant things sticking in branches, telephone poles, whatever, somebody's finger, you know, sticking in the side of the frame that you're going to have to crop out later. That's obviously not meant to be there. So always be focused on the subject, but also the periphery. When I'm shooting a film, I spend more time scanning the edges of the frame. Once I have sort of the composition and the shot that I'm comfortable with, then I immediately begin looking at everything else because I don't want there to be any distraction other than what it is I'm trying to tell, what it is I'm trying to show. You don't want any other distraction whatsoever because the minute other people have started thinking about something else, you've lost them. For instance, if the boom is in the shot in a movie, you've lost them. People no longer believe the movie is real, and now all they're thinking about is the technology used to produce the movie, and they don't care about the story anymore, you've lost them. That that's what I mean. You have to be careful about the details. Every detail matters when you're when you're telling a story in three seconds, when you're when you're taking control of somebody else's reality for an instant, every detail matters. 
Don't try to pack too much into your frame. Keep it simple. On a still photograph, keep it simple. Each photo should be about one thing, one particular story, one particular subject. Don't try to cram too much in there. Don't play around with left and right and people's eyes are batting back and forth and they don't know what they're supposed to pay attention to. Keep it simple. Simple, simple, simple. Less is often more in a photograph. Keep it simple. Maintain the details and only the details that you need to tell that particular scene. Once you've gotten your technical prowess down with f-stop and shutter speed and ISO, start to play around with those and see how it influences the outcome of your final photo. Do I, do I have more depth of field, less depth of field, more motion blur, less motion blur, more sensitivity with noise, less sensitivity with less noise, things like that. For me, I always prefer to get my camera close to the action, whatever it is I'm shooting. I get it close because I want people to feel a connection, especially if I'm shooting people or uh, an, an action or something. I want people to feel a connection to the subject. I think sometimes if you stand to the side, especially with a telephoto, it's obvious that you've sort of been a voyeur into that situation. And again, you want to be respectful of your space and, and other people's space. And, and obviously you don't want to jam the camera right into someone's eyes. But again, you want to bring the viewer into that moment. You want to have the viewer understand and feel that reality. That's the best photojournalism. That's the best documentary filmmaking. That's the best, well, any kind of image making is, is bringing the viewer, making the viewer feel a part of it. Even if it's only two seconds, they have felt a part of that scene and understand something more than they did before they looked at your photograph. So again, use your camera, move it around a lot. Always, always, always keep moving, keep moving, keep moving. Try different perspectives. Always keep looking. Always keep looking, always keep moving, and don't be afraid to use your camera in, in very exploratory ways, shall I say. Bring that camera in. Make it part of the action. Now, again, this requires being very comfortable with your sense of, of, of being a photographer, being comfortable with your craft, being comfortable with your ethics, being comfortable with all of it. Know where to draw the line. Don't move your camera into a situation in which you're not prepared. Because if you're standing there fumbling around trying to figure out what setting you should shoot while the action is moving quickly all around you, you can easily get swept up in a scene in which you've lost, you've lost situational awareness and all of a sudden you're more focused on your, your uh, dials on your camera or maybe the LCD screen on the back than you are the reality of what's going on without you. And that's a delicate line, but you need to always be aware. For instance, when I'm shooting a film, I have one ear with the sound coming from the microphone of the subject, and I have the other ear listening to reality around me. So if I hear something interesting, I can peel away right away and capture that moment. You should also be doing that as a photographer. Listening is just as important as shooting, and I can't say that enough. Listening is just as important as what you do with your camera. Constantly be listening for cues outside of what's going on in your viewfinder because most of the times your eyes will be glued to that viewfinder and your brain will be processing what's inside of that viewfinder. But at the same time, it's also processing all the other senses. So learn to pay attention to those senses simultaneously and you'll become a better photographer. Always be listening, listening, listening because things are happening all the time. And in many cases, they're not happening directly in front of you. Sometimes, on the other hand, though, if you're shooting like wildlife, you need to take it slow and be very patient. Some parts of reality unfold at very different speeds than others. And for instance, if you're shooting a pride of lions, at first glance, you drive up, they may not be doing much if you only spend 30 seconds with them. 
But if you spend five hours with them, you'll see them actually live their lives. And you'll, they'll actually do the moments that you're hoping to capture photographically. Uh, I've been to Africa a lot of times, and I see people literally drive up in a safari. They'll see six or seven lions, and they'll everybody will whip out their expensive brand-new lenses, and they'll shoot away. They'll spray the scene. And that's all they say. And then they're all laughing and cheering, and woohoo! I got a photo of a lion. Anybody can get a photo of a lion. Did you get a good photo of a lion? Did you get a unique photo of a lion? Did you get a photo of a lion that conveys something about that lion's life that maybe I didn't know before? That's the goal. Anybody can get a shot of a lion. Really, if your goal is to get a shot of a lion when you go on safari, just enjoy the moment. Just be quiet. Don't talk to your friends. Enjoy the moment of standing around and seeing that lion. Don't even bother taking a photo because there's 10 million other photos of, of good lions. Anyway, that's a pet peeve of mine. I'll, I'll stop there. With all of these techniques, if you practice and practice and practice and practice and practice and practice, what eventually will happen is you'll see that you've developed your own eye. You've developed your own brain. You've developed your own style. You've developed your own technique. You've developed your own point of view. You've developed everything that's unique about you, and that's what you want. That's what makes your art different, because your point of view is unlike anybody else's. You see the world slightly different than everybody else. Even in a reality situation where there's 10 eyewitnesses to a crime, each one of them will have seen it slightly differently. And that's the, that's the key in photography. Each one of you will see it slightly differently. So learn how to express those slight differences in reality, even if to you they may seem very subtle, to someone else they may seem huge. Post-production is another important aspect of modern digital photography. That's another whole long uh, podcast. Suffice to say that you need to understand what your software is capable of doing so that if you're in a rushed situation and you take a less than perfect picture, you need to know right away if it's something you can fix later or do you need to spend more time there and get it correct the first time. I try to shoot a good digital negative is what I call it because I came from the film days. And with film, you really had to kind of nail it the first time. You could manipulate it later, but not to the extent you can today. So I always try to get the, the best exposure I can in the field the first time, but I don't spend an, an inordinate amount of time making it perfect. If it's not quite perfect, uh, if it's a little underexposed, a little overexposed, to a certain extent, I understand that and I know that I can fix that with my software. So knowing the capability of your camera and the capability of your software is important. Um, we can do a post-production podcast later. To wrap things up, you don't need the best gear. You need the best mind. You don't need the best lenses. You need the best eye. You don't need the best camera. You need the best brain. And that's what you need to work on. Working on your eyes and your brain and your hands controlling the camera, for instance, being able to turn the lights off, sit in your camera in the complete darkness and know what all the dials are doing, all the buttons are doing, so that if you're shooting photos at night, you don't have to turn on your flashlight and look at your camera to make sure everything is set. You just know it. Now, obviously, this takes a lot of practice, but it comes into, it, it, it's, a, it's a skill that is, is, is undeniably one of the best skills you can have, is to know that camera like the back of your hand. Another pet peeve of mine is people who are in wonderful situations, for instance, safaris, and after every photo, they monkey it down and they look at their LCD screen. Don't, because you paid a lot of money to go on safari. So pay attention to your safari. 
once you've gotten confident with your photo skills, you know that that image on the LCD screen is going to be properly exposed. It's going to be in focus. So maybe do one check just to make sure the settings on your camera are correct and the camera's functioning correctly. So when you start out in the morning, shoot a few photos and review them quickly. But when you actually get to the thing you want to shoot, to get to the action, when you get to that Pride Alliance, don't keep looking at the back of your camera because you didn't spend $20,000 to visit those lions to look at the back of your camera. Be confident that it's there. Or if you do, take a few photos, look once, and then go back and don't look again. I, I just, I want to bang people over the head every time I see them spending so much time glued to the back of their camera. Take photos and then put the camera down and enjoy the scene. Enjoy nature. Enjoy what it's supposed to be. Don't sit there and just stare at all your photos. That's what the hotel room is for. Again, don't delete in the field. Save your photos. Hard drives are cheap. Don't get hung up on the software. Don't get hung up on the hardware. Just film. Just shoot. Just make it happen. And once it does, and then you think, okay, I really need a better lens or I really need a better camera, then go buy it. Be organized. This is a big one. Be organized because I'm not. And I constantly kick myself because I can never remember the photos I shot or where they are or who took them or when I took them or whatever. Always be as organized as you possibly can. When you do buy gear, treat it well. The better you treat your gear, the better it will treat you. Always charge your batteries. Always have your cards ready to go. It's a habit of mine that as soon as I'm, if I'm on a trip, the first thing I do when I walk into my hotel room before I do anything else, anything, is put the cam put the batteries on a charger. That's the very first thing I do. The second thing I do is put the camera card in a computer and download it to a hard drive and usually duplicate it to another hard drive. It's the second thing I do. Then I worry about everything else. But as long as the batteries are charged and I have card space, I can pretty much do anything. Then, you know, I'll clean the lens or I'll do whatever I need to do. Batteries and clean cards is the, is the first two things you should do no matter what you're doing on a trip. Shoot something or think about something every day. Don't let the skills falter. Literally, shoot something every single day, no matter what it is, even with your iPhone. Just walk around your house and find a unique angle. It's like exercise. Just spend a few minutes every day. Even if you'd spend a few minutes pre-visualizing photos you'd like to take, or even a few minutes training your brain some more, or even a few minutes reading your camera manual. Did I just say that? Yes, read your camera manual. Read it, because there are things in there that, you'll be surprised you learn. If you're in a foreign land and you're shooting unique foreign people, please always ask their permission. People are not props and they should not be treated as such. They're not on a stage for you. They're not animals in a zoo. Maybe they have incredible, unique local dress, but that's really a lot of times what they wear every day. The Maasai don't dress up like that just for you. They wear that every single day. The Peruvians don't wear top hats just because you showed up. They wear them all the time. So please be polite with your camera. Be respectful. Ask permission. Don't take your camera where it's not welcome. If you're ever in question, always ask. Uh, if you don't speak the language, point at your camera. In some cases, you can offer money. Um, but don't just barge into someone's home if they've invited you for over for a, a snack. Uh, don't barge in and start taking photos. Be respectful. Uh, in many cultures, there's certain things that they don't want you to take photos of. Um, be human. Be engaging. Don't just be a tourist. Uh, actually engage with your subjects because if you engage with your subjects and speak to them and learn just a few just a few things about them, if you spend five minutes with them, your photos will reflect that. You'll have a much more engaging photo. You'll have a much more emotive photo. Uh, you'll have a much more um, connection to the story you're trying to tell. And if you're not connected to the story you're trying to tell, you certainly won't be able to convey that connection to anyone else. 
I can't say this enough. Sometimes you just need to put your camera down and enjoy the reality and learn and enjoy the sounds and the smells. Use your other senses in the way that you were originally designed to do so, your vision and your, your hearing and your smells and, and everything. And, and just enjoy what it means to sit in the Maasai Mara in Kenya and Africa and the smells and the sounds and the wind. Uh, and if people are being really loud in your Jeep, tell them to shut up. Uh, if you go to someone's house, just sit for a moment with them and enjoy the smells coming from the kitchen, the music they're playing, the children running around in the courtyard, everything, the way the light is falling inside uh, their room, because architecture around the world is very different and the way people perceive interior spaces is, in is incredibly different around the world. And just soak it in, soak it in, because if you just just barge in and start taking photos, those photos won't be reflective of what it is you were feeling. Because if you take a moment and actually pay attention to your experience, then you can convey that. I know I keep repeating myself, but these are very important things. Sometimes if you take photos of somebody, you can offer something in return. Get an email address if they have one and send them the photo or give them something else in return. Learn the best time of day to shoot, the golden hour, read up on the golden hour and why that's important. So the beginning of the day, the end of the day, learn to take advantage of what nature gives you. And this is another aspect of really becoming aware of light and shadow and color. And always be present. Just be present as a photographer. Be present as an, as an observer. Always be present. This is what I'll leave you with. Just pay attention. Be present. Be empathetic to what's happening around you. Be objective about what's happening around you. Sometimes when you're shooting something um, horrific, like I've filmed bushmeat animals in markets, sometimes I have to remove my human side and I only have to plug in my, my brain camera combo. So really... I've turned my entire mind into nothing more than a camera processor. Because if I, if I pay attention to what it is I'm actually filming, I'll lose it. And in those cases, you really learn how well you've done with this kind of training. You're basically just going through training for those moments where things are going to happen that you have to just know the photographic process so well that it just comes naturally to you and you can either obtain a wonderful image and something happening so quickly then you'll never have another chance again or something so horrific that you just have to document it in a creative way but not really get subjectively involved so you're falling completely back on your photographic training and you're able to still tell the story but not get too involved or if you're in a protest you're enabled to to tell the story but keep yourself removed a little bit from the protest so that you're documenting what's going on. You don't become too involved in the actual process. You're, you're allowing the, that fine balance between becoming, real, becoming engaged in the reality and just using your photographic mind. Well, I hope you enjoyed my long rambling podcast. I hope you've gotten something out of it. At the end here, I'd like to leave you with a simple, but I think for me, profound exercise that will help you jumpstart your brain and thinking about all the photographic possibilities in the world. I usually teach this in the portion of the class that deals with audio. Audio in a film is extremely important, and it involves creating an environment consisting of many detailed levels. And that's what this exercise is all about. It's a short exercise that gets you started on your way to thinking about all the many layers of small details that go into making up a believable, emotional, uh, convincing experience 
uh, visually. Uh, in, in, in this case, it would be for sound designers for audio, but I think it also works for photographers and cinematographers so that you're paying attention to all of the little details that create a convincing uh, visual experience. So here we go with this little exercise. So find a comfortable spot, lie down, preferably, and close your eyes. Now, draw your mind inward and think about all of the nearest visual details that are on your body or just around your body. Things that maybe you could touch or things that maybe you can hear going on inside of your body. So just take a moment and consider all of those small little visual details. In an audio world, I'd be asking you to listen for all of the sounds your body's making, the clothes you're wearing or making, the sheets. So after a few seconds, expand your mental bubble to the room that you're in. So all of the things that you could see with your eyes closed, that you can remember that are hanging on the wall, kind of carpet, the kind of flooring, kind of ceiling, kind of lamps, kind of colors, textures, the way the light is coming through the window. Again, in an audio world, I'd be asking you to listen for clocks or music or creaks in the house, the little tiny details that make the world what it is. Then after you've done that for a few moments, expand the horizon just a little bit, just outside the walls of your house, the street, the front yard, the trees, the wind. But visually, I want you to think about all of the details that make up your front yard, your backyard, your garage, the street, the neighbor's house, all of those little things that you might include in a photo to help flesh out the world, to help tell the story that you want to tell just in a little bit more detail so that the viewer really has a sense of place, a sense of time. Now take your bubble and go beyond what you can generally see right outside of your window. So the next street over, the highway just down the road, all of those sounds and details, just think about all of them. Try to isolate your mind and just think about what details, you can think about the sounds or the visuals, what details are just beyond the horizon of what you can see. Now, photographically, is that important? Of course it is, because there might be an antenna sticking up, a cell phone antenna that's part of your picture or not, a tree, a, a bird in the sky, the sun, things like that. Now, expand it all the way out as far as you can think. And what are all those details that convey a sense of far, a sense of further, a sense of space, a sense of time, all of those details that you could include in a picture or a film to convey that moment that environment, that world that you're thinking of right now. Have a great photographic journey, and I'll see you next time.